Welcome to BSD Talk, number 98. It's Wednesday, February 7, 2007. I just have an interview with Matthew Dillon today, so we'll go right to it. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Matthew Dillon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So recently there has been a release, and maybe you could start by giving us a basic overview of what's new in Dragonfly BSD. The biggest user-visible item in this release is the uh, virtual kernel support, which is basically similar to uh, UML, user mode Linux, but Dragonfly on Dragonfly, basically running a Dragonfly kernel as a single process on a Dragonfly system. And my primary reason for doing this first uh, is that it became very obvious that the, the engineering cycle time just to test and, you know, make changes and test and make changes was going way too slowly for kernel work. And for the, for the uh, features that, that we really want to get in the system, you know, the, the ultimate goals of Dragonfly, the clustering uh, and so on and so forth, new file system, that kind of thing, we really needed that kind of, uh, that ability with the virtual kernel to really have an instant run, instant test, you know, cycle. So for people who maybe aren't too familiar with the different levels of virtualization, where do these virtual kernels fit in between things maybe like BSD jails versus Xen or QEMU? Yeah, well, so you have um, yeah you have a, a jail-like environment, you have a Xen-like environment, and you have a QEMU or VMware-like environment, and they're different levels of virtualization. The jail doesn't try and virtualize anything really. It just restricts what the programs have access to. They're running on the same system, basically. And it's not really virtualizing a kernel. It's just making it kind of look that way. It's kind of faking it. But it still has many uses because it's very high performance because it's not virtualizing anything. A Zen-like environment, where in a Zen-like environment, you're running a kernel that's aware of the Zen environment. So it's not 100% hardware virtualization. It's aware that it's in the Zen environment and it, and it makes allowances for that by doing special calls when it needs to do something with the VM system, for example, or with drivers. And a VMware or QEMU type of uh, virtualization, that's a full hardware virtualization where you run basically your, the, the same kernel and system that you would run on uh, bare hardware, you'd run it under QEMU or VMware, and it would just run, or at least that's the idea. And where where we come in is more like, a, it's, it's more um, closer to Zen uh, than anything else. It's very aware, uh, the, the Dragonfly virtual kernel is very aware that it is running as a virtual kernel. And it's actually, what we actually did was, uh, it only runs under a real Dragonfly kernel. So it's not like Zen where we're trying to allow or support multiple guest operating systems. What we're really doing is we're supporting Dragonfly kernel running under Dragonfly kernel. And we're doing that by giving the real kernel and the virtual kernel additional system calls that allow 
uh, the manipulation of VM spaces and the interception of system calls and that sort of thing. So the Dragonfly virtual kernel isn't actually doing anything special other than using these new system calls to manage its own memory space and to manage the, uh, the virtualized user processes that are running under it. The, the advantage of this is that the real kernel uh, has very low uh, resource overhead. Really, the real kernel is only managing page tables for the virtualized processes being run by the virtual kernel. And on nearly all, I think, all BSD systems, uh, certainly FreeBSD and Dragonfly, page tables are all throwaway, uh, which means that the real kernel can throw them away at any time and you know, take extra faults to regenerate them later on. So the resource overhead is, is very low, you know, except for the memory issue, uh, which is the amount of memory you tell the virtual kernel it has. So what that's, about that's, file system space? Well, the virtual kernel, it's basically a kernel. So uh, right now, our virtual kernel, you give it a, uh, a root image, basically a, uh, a virtualized hard drive that's basically, it's just a file, you know, 50 gigabyte file, you give it to virtual kernel, and that's what it uses as its file system. It uses it as a block device. Uh, we've given it a network interface using the, uh, the TAP device. So the virtual kernel can communicate with the outside world via the network interface, which means that, of course, it can use NFS and, and any other networking protocol to also access file systems. Uh, eventually, we're going to have, as part of the clustering work, we're going to have a protocol called Syslink, which will be used to link the clustered hosts together. And that will also have the capability of doing a file system transport, a device transport, transport, and, and transport for other resources such as uh, CPU contexts and VM contexts and that sort of thing. And why develop your own virtual kernel technology instead of using existing ones, perhaps like Xen or QAMU? Well, the problem with QEMU and VMware is that they aren't really good for testing kernels. I mean, they're good for running systems. They're, they're, in many cases, they can be higher performing than a virtual kernel, although theoretically, as things mature, I think the virtual kernel technology, that is the, the Zen-like technology, uh, will be able to exceed that because they will be aware of the, the context. But the, the issue with VMware and Q, QEMU is that since they're emulating a hardware environment, if a kernel takes five minutes to boot on real hardware, well, it takes at least five minutes to boot on uh, QEMU or VMware or slower, you know, depending on what devices you've got and you know, this and that and the other thing. But certainly it will take longer to boot, you know, even if you can get it down to 30 seconds. It takes longer to boot than the five seconds it takes a virtual kernel to boot. Uh, another big difference is that since the virtual kernel is simply a process running under the real kernel, you can GDB it live on the real kernel. So it really makes debugging a whole lot easier uh, when the virtual kernel is sitting there as a process that you can manipulate. And what other new features are coming for 1.8? Or I should say not coming, it's already here. What, <laughs> what new features are in 1.8? Well, I could go through the diary. There are a ton of application updates. There are a ton of bug fixes a ton of driver updates, especially uh, with the wireless drivers and the network drivers. We really had a focus on those, or, or one of our developers did. There's a lot of under-the-hood work to continue to get the Dragonfly kernel staged and ready for the, for the up, up, upcoming uh, clustering work. 
for example, we were, I'm slowly uh, integrating the cash coherency management into the kernel. It's actually partially in there now in 1.8. It's just not doing anything yet. We uh, revamped the way the namespace topology works a little, uh, got rid of um, aliases that we had there before to handle nullfs mounts. Nullfs is basically the ability to take an existing portion of the file system and mount it somewhere else, kind of like a hard link directory, but it it's, uh, looks like a separate mount to the system. So you can construct uh, jailed environments to rooted environments with read-only, with portions of your real file system mounted read-only to avoid having to uh, duplicate data. So we did a, a major rewrite of uh, NullFS to make that very, very efficient. And well, let's see what else we have here. A lot of cleanups in the file system APIs to kind of try and get that ready for the syslink protocol, uh, the ability to run file systems over uh, communications links. And you know, basically a lot of under-the-hood work. We brought in GCC 4.1. The way the Dragonfly compiler environment works is we can actually have multiple compilers installed on the system and switch between them with a simple environment variable. So our base compiler is still 3.4. But we brought 4.1 in, and there are people simply by setting the environment variable who are getting the tree buildable under that kernel. We'll probably go live with it when 4.2 comes out. We're not going to go, probably not going to go live with uh, GCC 4.1. Are there other features that didn't quite make it into 1.8 that you're looking forward to putting into 2.0? We did port the FreeBSD uh, new ATA IDE driver. And uh, we're still working on stabilizing that. It's in there, but it's really just for debugging. And hopefully that will go live sometime uh, during this semester uh, and be there in 2.0 as, as the default. Yeah, one of the things that you did do with Dragonfly BSD was to start with FreeBSD and take a different path. Have you found it more difficult over time to import work from the other BSDs as you've headed down your own road? For the work that makes sense to import, it's been fairly easy. The real issue, well, there are two issues. One is uh, bringing in application support, and as you may know, we went with package source for that, and that's pretty painless compared to to trying to continuously you know, keep the FreeBSD ports up to date. And then the second issue is, of course, hardware drivers. And for wholesale replacements, for example, bringing in NATA, it is a considerable amount of work now because the, dry, the Dragonfly driver infrastructure is, is really diverged significantly from FreeBSD. But for bug fixes and incremental fixes, uh, things like that, it's pretty painless. We, you, know, you just take a diff of the FreeBSD tree, you see what they fix, and you fix it in the Dragonfly tree or vice versa. And some people seem to have this fixation with major number bumps, such as the 1 series to the 2 series. Are you just doing a continuation of numbers, or is there anything particular? Well, I don't want to go to 1.10. I think that's a, li- <laughs> it's a little confusing. It doesn't sort well. You know, 1.8, 1.10 is less than 1.8 if you string sort it. Will it be a 2.0, as in, you know, boldface 2.0? Probably not, but it will... You know, we're in the second half of the project now. I mean, we're at the point now where, uh, sure, there's still a lot of SMP work to go, but the infrastructure is really 
ready to go for the second part of the project. And, and the second part of the project is really the clustering and system link and a new file system. And 2.0 will not have those in production, but 2.1 certainly will. Or at least it will certainly have uh, the new file system in production. And I don't really think that you can have uh, you know, new features in production in a .0 anyway. So I think 2.0 is, is fairly well positioned, but 2.1 will be the real deal. And if people read your blog on the Dragonfly website, they will see that every once in a while there's some talk about ZFS or other file systems that you're considering for your clustered file system. Could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, that's, that's, I've been thinking a lot about that. There are a lot of issues. Um, one of the issues with ZFS is that it would probably take as much time to port it as it would to build a new file system from scratch using similar principles. Uh, another issue with ZFS is that it's not really a cluster file system. It's, it's really a mass storage file system. You, know, you have hundreds of terabytes, and you don't want to lose any of it. That's ZFS. And so what we really need for Dragonfly is a, a cluster file system capable of supporting hundreds of terabytes without, you know, without losing it. And ZFS doesn't quite fit the bill, but many of, of the features of ZFS are features that I really like, like the, uh, you know, the hashing of the data and having hash checks on the data and that kind of thing, the snapshotting. Uh, well, to give you an example of, of what we need versus what ZFS has, you have a snapshot capability in ZFS, but what we really need in Dragonfly is more uh, like a database transaction uh, where you have an infinite number of snapshots where each snapshot is basically every time the file system syncs. And you can at any point mount a snapshot as of you know some point in the past that's that's still present that you haven't just deleted the uh, the old data for, and the reason we need that in a clustered system is that in a clustered system you need to be able to do cache coherency management and you need to be able to do it without transferring unnecessary amounts of data, and so if every bit of data has say a transaction ID. It has some kind of relative timestamp and where you can say, okay, here's my cache data, here's the timestamp of the cache data, and here's this other program that I need to be synchronized with, and it has an idea of, of its synchronization point. If those timestamps match, then my cache is good. If they don't match, then I need to go through some sort of synchronization mechanism to get the most up-to-date data. And in a cluster system where you have execution contexts, all over the place, you know, potentially. Uh, you can't afford just to copy the data back and forth willy-nilly. You really have to copy only the data that needs to be copied and only when it needs to be updated, really. Are there any candidate cluster file systems that are BSD licensed or have a license that would be appropriate for Dragonfly? Not that I know of, but I'm not the type of person that really goes through and looks at the research papers very deeply. I'm the kind of person who just likes to invent, you know, sit down and say, okay, here are the basic ideas of what file system A, B, and C do that I like. I'm going to pull those ideas in and I'm going to implement it, you know, from scratch. That's kind of what I am. So hopefully in the next couple of releases, we'll be able to create a virtual cluster on a single piece of 
hardware to test out all this fun stuff. That's one of the main reasons why that virtual kernel supports in 1.8. It's precisely uh, what we'll be able to do. It's really the only way we'll be able to test the clustering code and the cache coherency management is to really have these virtualized systems that, as far as they're concerned, are running on separate boxes with communications links. Otherwise, there's just no way we could we could test it and and have an engineering cycle time that would get us to our goal in you know the next two years. So, is the project looking for any specific developers with skill sets or any particular hardware that people could help out with? Well, we're always looking for people that are interested in working on various aspects of the system. It doesn't necessarily have to be the clustering code. It doesn't necessarily have to be the file system code. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done in with the, um, the SMP, for example, the network stack. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of loose ends in the code base, which work fine now, but are still under the big giant lock and could, with some attention, be taken out of that big giant lock and, and really made to operate in parallel on an SMP system. And it just hasn't been a priority for me because the, the main project goals are the cluster, is the clustering. And are you working on any other projects that are BSD-related but aren't Dragonfly BSD these days? Uh, no, not right now. Um, Dragonfly is the, is the main project. You know, I have this list of projects that I want to do and, you know, in my lifetime, and I'm never going to be able to do all of them. Right now, my focus is Dragonfly probably for the next two years. And, you know, in the end of two years, my ex- expectation is that we're going to have this clustered uh, system with very, very uh, redundant file system uh, that's fairly high performance. And some people are never satisfied with running a released system. They really want to run bleeding edge. If people want to start working on and testing 1.9, how can they get a hold of that? Well, you just go to our site. We basically have a, the release branch and we have the head branch. And people can choose to run what they want. Of course, we suggest the release branch for anyone running any production Unix stuff. Um, the head branch will, we've managed to keep it stable throughout most of the development cycles that we've done You know, for 1.2, 1.4, 1.6, 1.8 release. The head branch during the development of those releases has remained fairly stable. And I expect uh, that to continue. It's always good to have a fairly stable head, but you know, occasionally on the head branch something will break and uh, it will be noticed and fixed or reported or we'll just have to say, you know, this is going to be broken for a week or something like that. And you just have to be aware of that when you're working on, on uh, the head of the source development tree. Is it possible to install 1.8 and then run the head branch on a virtual kernel? Yeah, in fact, you can. They should remain compatible all the way through 2.0. The only issue there is that if we make changes to the API, since the only thing using the the, the uh, new system calls is the virtual kernel and not any third-party apps, we still feel free to change that API. And if we do change that API, it means that a person running release has to update the release to the latest release to get the changes and then update head to the latest head to be able to run the virtual kernel. But so far, there haven't been any changes to the API that require that. Well, are there any other topics that you want to talk about today? Um, You know, actually, I would like to talk about the virtual kernel a a little more. 
because it turned out to be very easy to implement, and I think it's something that the other BSD projects should look at very seriously, uh, not necessarily depend on VMware or QEMU uh, for their virtualization, or at least not dependent on it entirely. Uh, To implement the virtual kernel support, I think I only had to do three things. And, you know, it's fairly significant work, but it's still three things, and it's fairly generic. Uh, The first was I implemented signal mailboxes. So you tell a signal to basically write data into a mailbox instead of uh, generating an exception, you know, in a signal stack and all that. The second is I added a new feature to memory map, the mmap call, that allows you to memory map a virtual page table. And I added another system call to allow you to specify where in the, the backing of that map the page directory was. And this is this basically virtual page table support. Uh, and then the third is uh, VM space management, the ability to create and manage and execute code in VM spaces that are completely under your control. So this is in lieu of forking processes to handle the, quote, virtualized user processes. Instead, the kernel has this ability to manipulate VM spaces, and it basically, for at least with this, uh, the current virtual kernel, basically it switches the VM space in, runs it, and then when you have to return to the virtual kernel, it switches the VM space back out, and everything runs under, under a single process. And it turned out to be fairly easy to implement these things, uh, fairly straightforward, and they're generic mechanisms, especially the, uh, the virtual page table memory map mechanism. It's, it's completely generic. And the signal mailbox mechanism, completely generic. And so I think it's well worth other BSDs looking at those mechanisms and looking at those implementations uh, and perhaps bringing that code uh, into their systems because I think it's very, very useful. And do these changes provide any benefit for the general operating system kernel, or is it only in the context of virtual kernels? I think they do provide a benefit to general applications. Any application, especially with signals. With signals, a lot of applications uh, just want, you know, they, they, you can't really do much in the signal handler because you're interrupting other code and you really don't know what the context is. And so if you look at applications such as uh, the shell code or really any program that needs to handle terminal, uh, a terminal window size change or something like that, usually what it does is it specifies a signal handler and all the signal handler does is set a global variable and return and that's it. And what you really want to do is use a, a signal mailbox there rather than a signal handler that does the same thing. So it contracts that, and it makes it very easy. Any application that needs to manage a VM space, and this includes user-level clustering applications. So I'm not talking what Dragonfly's goal is, is a kernel-level uh, clustering, but there are already existing many user-level clustering systems. And being able to manage a VM space with this page table uh, memory map mechanism uh, makes that a whole lot easier. So if if that feature became generally used in the BSDs and ported to Linux, and you know generally used in the Unix world, I can see a lot of advantage for third-party application development there. All right. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Yeah. Thank you very much. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. Or if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. 
That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 98.